chapter 12, we encountered dark times that saw the Jerusalem community enduring famine, the death of leaders, and the imprisonment of Peter. The contrast between the tyranny of Herod and the sacrificial actions of the church were like a bright light shining in a dark cell. The deeds and teachings of Jesus Christ were displayed in brothers providing relief from the famine 
New leaders rising in the place of their slain friends and chains of darkness that were broken in the sovereignty of God. By the end of the chapter, Herod was dead. Peter was released. And the word of God was increased as ministry began to multiply. This reminds us of a passage from Isaiah. This is Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 3. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The glory of God is not reserved for comfortable moments. Glory is not revealed in the absence of obstacles but rather through overcoming them by the power of the Spirit. Church, as we begin to understand the sovereignty of Adonai, then we will also begin to see every obstacle as an opportunity for His glory to be revealed through us. Let's continue in the passage in verse 6. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Herod's glory faded in a moment as he was slain by the sword of an angel. The word of God prevailed over the darkness and the light shone brightly through the church that is the body of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, the passage continues. Let's go to verse 9. Go on up to the high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom, Mm. and gently lead those that are with young. Amen. Luke's first scroll was about the deeds and teachings of Jesus as He displayed the visible form of Adonai's arm. Luke's second scroll, that we call Acts, is displaying the body of Christ acting as the arm of Adonai on earth. Adonai tends his flock like a shepherd, amen? Amen. And nothing happens outside of his sovereignty. He uses the body of believers to gather the new disciples into his arms and carry them next to his heart. The rough places and dark times of Acts 12 gave way to the light that shone in the darkness. Hallelujah. The obstacles were overcome and the word of God spread as disciples multiplied. Amen. Yeah. The 13th chapter of Acts returned to Antioch where the prophets had arisen among the disciples. They discerned the heart of Adonai as they were compelled by the Spirit to sanctify Barnabas and Saul for the further expansion of the kingdom into new lands. Mm. The chapter displayed the entire community witnessing this grace and they laid their hands on Barnabas and Saul as an act of recognition and commissioning so that the two men 
could expand the grace of God to new peoples. Here's a map that illustrates the first stop in their efforts. So Acts chapter 4 introduced Joseph as a Levite from Cyprus who received the name Barnabas. The first stop on Barnabas and Saul's journey took them to the former home of Barnabas. They were immediately met with opposition from a Jewish sorcerer named Elimus. Much like Acts 12, this kind of obstacle only served to reveal an opportunity for the glory of Adonai to be revealed. Amen. The sword of God's word cut deeply into the situation, dividing the darker elements of the Jewish family from those walking in the light of Adonai's revelation. Barnabas and Saul were summoned by a Roman official because he wanted their instruction. It became clear to Saul that Elimus was attempting to pervert the right way of the Lord prophesied through Isaiah and revealed in Jesus. Saul proclaimed that the hand of the Lord was upon Elimus and that he would be blind and unable to see the light of the sun. Not only did this result in the proconsul becoming a disciple, but it also, uh, but it is also Saul beginning to shine as a as a result of Barnabas' constant advocacy and inclusion of Saul in his own work. So let's take a look at another slide that will bring us to their next major stop. You guys can see on the upper north part of the screen, Pisidian Antioch. Barnabas and Saul, they were likely dressed as a Levite and a Pharisee. This resulted in an invitation to speak while they were there in the local synagogue. Barnabas seems to have differed to Saul. He referred to Saul in a godly act of humility, asking him to speak. Saul delivered a message that resembles Peter's earlier message detailing the history of Israel and coming to the landing point of Jesus being the son of David that did not see decay. Hallelujah. The message was met with a visible display of God's grace so that many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. This is the first time in Luke's narrative that he ever mentions Paul before Barnabas. The usual formula had typically been Barnabas and Saul. We see that in Acts 11.30, 12.25, 13.2, and 13.7. This subtle detail is probably a hint that Barnabas' constant advocacy and inclusion of Saul was causing him to shine prominently as a successful minister of the gospel. Amen. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Come on! This provoked jealousy within Jewish family members who went on to oppose the message. As always, though, the sword of the word of God cut deeply into the situation and illustrated which Jews were walking in the light of Adonai's revealed way in which Jews had become slaves of the darkness. Mm. Nevertheless, though, Two important things happened as a result of this obstacle. First, Paul and Barnabas turned their attention to Gentiles in that area. The two Jewish men saw themselves as fulfilling the words of Isaiah 49 and became Israelites, bringing the revelation given to them to the descendants of Japheth and Ham. This never represented Paul or Barnabas turning away from the nation of Israel. In the chapter tonight, will feature them beginning in a synagogue once again. Yeah. It just illustrates that they were walking in the way to the point that they were fulfilling the destiny of national Israel. The second important thing that happened is that they produced disciples that were Jewish, 
There were converts to Judaism and Gentiles. These men all became followers of the way, revealed through Messiah. The chapter closed with those disciples being filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Amen. As we prepare to enter into Acts chapter 14, we want to remind you of a beautiful message we heard Sunday about the five elements of ministry that are highlighted in the book of Acts. You'll remember this slide. The priority of ministry is always the body performing the deeds and teachings of Jesus. Second, the power of ministry is the spirit of Jesus empowering you to carry out his will on earth. Three, the progress of ministry, the outward focus and expansion of the kingdom of God selflessly is how we illustrate the progress of ministry. Four, the people of ministry. This is you guys. Yeah. Every member of the body ministering as Christ himself would minister. Hallelujah. Five, the ultimate purpose of ministry. The gospel is for the whole world, but it began in Jerusalem and it ends in Jerusalem because Jerusalem (laughs) is the city that is the throne of God. We're witnessing the emergence of the man that we've all come to think of as Paul. It's important for you to realize that Paul did not descend from heaven as a fully trained and discipled minister. Oh, wow. The record of Acts shows the constant advocacy for Paul from Barnabas and also Barnabas's inclusion of Paul in the work that he had already been given at Antioch. Yeah. Discipleship is always the key to the advancement of the kingdom. And we should all seek to be like Barnabas in our deeds and teachings. Amen. This is because Barnabas was like Jesus in his own deeds and teachings. This is what will produce a never-ending and ever-increasing expansion of the kingdom in our future. Lastly, let us again reflect on the end of Paul's life with the words that he used to encourage Timothy. This is in 2 Timothy 4. Verse 5 through 8. But you, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. The duties of your ministry begin with performing the deeds and teachings of Jesus. The duties of your ministry must rely on the power of the Spirit so that you are working in the grace of God and not your own talents and strength. The duties of your ministry must always be outward focused geographically and in your personal interactions. You must esteem others as more important than yourself. The duties of your ministry are always in the service of the people of ministry. This means that you serve Jesus by empowering others to serve Him. Amen. This is His body, and you are never the head of it. You serve Jesus by assisting your brothers in better serving Him. The duties of your ministry will benefit every nation in the world through discipleship, but will always have Adonai's purpose for Israel as the final aim of ministry. The gospel began in Israel and must also reach its talios or aim in Israel. Oh, that's good. Let's continue in Paul's final thoughts to his disciple Timothy in verse 6. 
For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. Yeah. And the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Paul identified his crown of righteousness. And we opened with that passage in Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul saw Timothy as his crown. Yeah. In fact, he saw every disciple as a crown. Paul spent his life pouring himself out that his disciples might shine brightly. This is what you must also do between this moment and your future departure. Number one, pour yourself out in the priority of ministry so that others will engage in the deeds and teachings of Jesus. Secondly, pour yourself out in the power of ministry so that others will be empowered by the Spirit unto greater deeds than you have accomplished. Thirdly, Pour yourself out in the progress of ministry, living selflessly and focused outwardly towards others so that they may magnify your sacrificial example and bring glory to Adonai. Number four, pour yourself out into the people of ministry so that every member of the body of Christ might become a more qualified minister than you are presently. Amen. Amen. And finally... Pour yourself out into the purpose of ministry so that there will be a never-ending and ever-increasing line of disciples, ones that reverse the road from Rome all the way back to Jerusalem. Amen. Well, this is the time. Let's get a man like Luke to pray for us before we get started. Come on, Luke. Come on, man. Woo!
At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. Come on. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates, because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside of the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derbe. They preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the, di the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church, and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord, in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From Italia they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Amen. Amen. Are you guys excited? Yeah. Well, we have a chapter backed with revelation, backed with practical application. Let's go. And we're on our toes for it. So, Mr. Linton, let's do verse 1 and just verse 1. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went, as usual, into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. We shouldn't have to do this, but in our present environment, uh, it is necessary. <laughs> Many dispensational teachers have misunderstood the events of Acts 13. So let's start examining Acts 13 verse 46 and its relationship to Acts 14 verse 1. Mm. We read this verse last uh, week, Acts 13, 46. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. We, we had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you rejected and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, now we turn to the Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas had a great success with Jews, converts to Judaism, and Gentiles in the city of Pisidian Antioch. However, the unbelieving Jewish population grew hostile and jealous. Mm. This led Paul and Barnabas to focus on Gentiles in that area. Some have unfortunately misunderstood this to be a more comprehensive statement indicating that the ministry of Paul and Barnabas now solely focused on Gentiles. Mm. 
This is false. That understanding is unbiblical and profoundly repudiated by the text itself. If it were true, then it would be difficult to explain why only seven verses later, both Paul and Barnabas are entering, as usual, into the Jewish synagogue. Moreover, the rest of the book of Acts continues to display the pattern of first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. In order to give you a larger scope of this pattern, we would like to show you a slide that gives you 10 references to Paul entering a synagogue to teach. Yeah, so take a look at this slide, and I'm going to need your help interacting with it to drive home a point. All right. In Acts 9.20, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue. 13.5, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue. In 13.14, they went into the synagogue and sat down. In 14.1, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue. 17.1-2, synagogue. So Jesus and Paul went Jews. Of the Jews. Sorry, yes. I got a... Yes. A synagogue! <laughs> and Paul as was his custom. Acts 17... I told you I'd need help with this. Acts 17.10, they went into a Jewish... Synagogue! 17.17, he reasoned in the... Synagogue! Jews! 18.4, he reasoned in the... Synagogue! Every Sabbath. 18.19, he himself went into the... Synagogue! And 19.8... He entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly. So the thing to remember is that seven of these references are after Paul oh. and Barnabas made the declaration about turning to the Gentiles in the region of Pisidian Antioch. Additionally, the book of Acts closes with Paul reasoning with the Jews in Rome. So clearly, the biblical record displays that neither Paul nor Barnabas ever turned away from their responsibility to the Jewish people. Amen. But instead, their statement should be understood in the limited sense of the unbelieving Jewish population of Pisidian Antioch alone. In fact, Acts 17.2 is definitive on this point. Let's read that. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of Jews. And Paul went in as was his custom. Whoa. Wow. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Our point has been abundantly made. Yes. That's true. In our opening verse and in the rest of the book of Acts, the clear pattern is to begin in the synagogue and then move outward to the overtly pagan world. Well, that brings us to verse 2, Brother Linton. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So throughout the teachings on Acts 12 and 13, our brothers repeatedly clarified Luke's use of the word Jews. Mm -hmm. This is because an uninformed reading of the text can lead you to infer things that Luke never actually implies. Wow. The scripture frequently says the Jews were pleased by the death of James, or the Jews saw the crowd and were filled with jealousy. The use of the phrase, the Jews, is always shorthand for the Jews who refused to believe. Yeah. Just as Acts 14.2, the verse we just read, indicates. The original audience would never have needed this kind of clarification, since the largest majority of the believers were themselves <coughs> Jews ah. in the early decades of our faith. True. But in our time, we felt the need to make the distinction. Acts 14.2 is one of the places that the phrase is clarified for all of the other passages. Let's spend a minute discussing the background, 
in meaning of unbelieving Jews attempting to poison the minds of Gentiles against believing Jews and Gentiles within the community. Did you guys hear a slide here, poison the mind? This is from Lunita. means to cause harm or injury to someone or something else. And catch this in brackets. A highly generic meaning involving a wide range of harm and injury. The word translated as poison here is used almost 60 times in the Older and Newer Testaments in their Greek versions. Wow. The idea being conveyed in this verse is a harm or injury to your mind or more literally soul. The term in Greek is psyche here. Wow. That would produce hostility against the community of God. In our experience, this is a frequent tactic of the enemy. So we want to give you the antidote to this kind of venom. Amen. The Apostle Peter tells you how to inoculate yourself from this spiritual disease. Do you want the antidote? Yes! First Peter 3.9 Do not repay evil with evil, or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Saints, the best defense against the poisoning of your psyche is to decide in advance that you will never repay an insult with an insult. Amen. The commitment to turn away from evil and focus on doing good, seeking peace, and pursuing it actually strengthens your defense. It also happens to be exactly what Psalm 15 and Psalm 34 teach as well. Your resolve should be strengthened by the assurance that the Lord is attentive to the request of believers who practice this aspect of our faith diligently. Look at what Peter says next in verse 13. Who is going to harm you you, if you are eager to do good? Who is going to harm or poison? This is the same Greek word. If you are eager to do good. Come on now. The eagerness to do good is a defense against the poisoning of your soul. The truth is that those who are poisoned were vulnerable to it because they were not properly focused on what is good. Mm. This happens when a person has not circumcised away an evil desire from their heart. And so they readily drink of the poison that they are being offered. Yeah. Nobody falls away from the community of faith without first having made themselves vulnerable through a lack of repentance in their own heart. Their own latent evil, blatant evil desires are then used by others to drag them away from the faith and put them to death. Wow. Let's go to James 1 verse 13. It says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, 
when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Understand, guys, that nobody is able to poison you, and you are not a victim. The successful poisoning of a person's mind begins with the evil desires already present within the person. The devil utilizes what you already wanted to do and then poisons you through other men's words that entice you to justify in your mind what you already wanted to do in your heart. Come on, that's golden. The defense against this kind of poisoning is an eagerness to do good and a turning away from every evil thought that resides in your heart presently. Let's consider how Peter finished his statement in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. Let's do it. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Amen. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Yeah. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So Peter's point is that even if another tries to poison you because they have yielded to their own fear, you make yourself invulnerable by setting apart Christ as the Lord of your thoughts, of your actions, and of your life. Then you can respond with the basis for your hope in the face of inevitable slander which you will receive. That's true. However, (laughs) your conscience will be kept clear and the person trying to poison you will suffer shame for their behavior. We have given you the antidote. Are you happy about that? Yes. The antidote is to do what is right, to do what is good. We are not a victim. Amen. Let's take verse 3. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the the message of His grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. So look at the victorious spirit that the early believers displayed. Opposition was considered a sign that they should spend more time in Iconium. You're opposing? I'm going to be here all day! What's more, they thought of it as an invitation for God to do the miraculous. The response from Paul and Barnabas was first modeled in the Jerusalem community after they were threatened by the Sanhedrin. Listen to Acts 4, picking up in 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So the believers in Iconium were benefited by the example that the church in Jerusalem displayed first. But the church in Jerusalem had a living witness to Jesus' response to the same kind of opposition. Hear this in Luke 13, beginning in verse 31. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, Go tell that fox. I will drive out. Yeah, come on! And heal people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. 
The amazing thing that Acts 14 is displaying is that from Jesus' response to opposition to the church in Jerusalem's response to opposition and now the new community and Iconium's response to opposition, Come on. well, the response is the same. Yeah. Amen. Amen. It's boldness instead of fear. It's dependency on the miraculous instead of reliance on the strength of a man. And sacrificial time spent there rather than self-preserving flight. This demands a similar response from us, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It is true that there are times when we are persecuted in one city and must flee to another at the direction of the Spirit. But certainly, we ought to consider that this courageous response is at least as valid unless otherwise directed. Come on. Thanks, we want to tell you tonight, spiritual warfare rarely involves wrestling with demons or an appearance of Satan himself. The more common form that it takes is the constant pressure for you to reevaluate your objectives in the face of opposition. We would like to remind you of something else that Luke wrote in his first scroll to Theophilus. Well, let's do it. It's found in Luke 16, 16. Mm. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom is being preached. And everyone is forcing his way into it. Look, many of us have been to Iconium. In fact, we were literally poisoned there by an imam in training. That's true. My son Gabriel challenged him by calling Muhammad a pedophile, and we paid a price for it. (laughs) We've dealt with demoniacs on the footsteps of the mosque in Iconium. As bad as the physical suffering was, and it was bad, the larger and more palpable opponent was discouragement. Now is the time to strengthen our resolve. Now is the time to increase our prayer. Now is the time to ask the God of heaven to give us boldness and call on his name to extend his miraculous hand into these kinds of situations. But to do any of that, you must first learn to stand your ground in the face of opposition. Perhaps the reason that so many of you are enduring trials of various kinds right now is precisely so that you will learn to stand and draw the family sword of God's Word and rightly divide every situation. Come on. Why don't we pick up in verse 4? The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. The idea that the gospel creates feelings of universal harmony is a modern invention. And it's based on total ignorance of the Word of God. That's true. And a tad bit of faggotry. Tad bit. Sleek, grayscale faggotry. Jesus himself was the Prince of Peace, and yet he was found to be in contention in almost every chapter of the Gospels. Wow. Remember that he had said in Luke 12, 49, I came to cast fire on the earth. And would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to bring peace on earth? No! No, I tell you, but rather division. The bold preaching of the word and the displaying of miraculous signs did not bring universal harmony. The truth is that it rightly divided those who are destined for the fire from those who are destined to be at the feast of Abraham, chaff and wheat. Something else has just happened in Acts 14.4 4, 
that you may not have caught in your first hearing of it. They didn't catch it. This is the first time in the book of Acts that somebody other than the 12 original apostles is referred to as an apostle. Wow. wow. Guys, Proverbs 17, 17 is close to many of your hearts. We're going to read that for you now. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. It is likely true that both Barnabas and Paul were destined to be apostles from birth. But it was not until this moment, surrounded by adversity, that this calling was identified from a third party's perspective. Philip has been called an evangelist. Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, have been called prophets and teachers. Now, both Barnabas and Paul are referred to as apostles. Jesus Christ is appointing men to these functions to carry on the deeds and the teachings of His body on earth. And that process does not stop until the restoration of all things. Amen. Question for you, though. Do you crave recognition for the calling of God on your life? That's a tough question, isn't it? The answer is yes. Yes. How much time are you willing to spend working in adversity without the recognition of your function? Three and a half minutes. Not a long time. Guys, it's difficult to place an exact time stamp on these events. But it has likely been nearly a decade since Saul was transformed. And even longer for Barnabas. Wow. Please, tonight, do not make the mistake of thinking that these men were the first apostles other than the twelve. Because that is simply not true. They're the first recorded in the book of Acts. The truth is that many things were happening in the church that was now spread out over many different geographical locations. Paul himself makes the point that Adronicus and Junius were outstanding among the apostles and were in Christ before he was. We should probably read that. Let's do that. Let's read that in Romans 16, verse 7. He says, Greet Adronicus and Junius, my relatives, who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among what? The apostles. And they were in Christ before I was. Our point is not about the 13th or 14th apostles, but rather that Luke is recording the development of Paul from Acts 9 up to this point. So let's consider these passages in this life. It's titled, Paul did not descend from heaven as a fully trained disciple or an apostle. In 1 Corinthians 1.1, he says, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. In the second letter, 2 Corinthians 1.1, he says of himself, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. The will of God determined that Paul would be an apostle. This was probably true from his birth, but it did not become evident for almost a decade after his transformation. Notice the subtle difference between the openings of his first and his second letter to the Corinthian church. Clearly Paul grew in the calling that had been his destiny since birth. 
Is there any man that played a bigger role in his development than Barnabas? No. no. While you're thinking about that, let's keep moving and we will come back to that subject in verse 12. There was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to ill-treat them and to stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country, where they continued to preach the good news. In some cases, the rising opposition caused the apostles to stand and boldly proclaim the word. Yeah. They even saw it as an invitation for increased supernatural signs. However, in other cases, the rising opposition indicated that it was time to move to the next region. Yeah. This same pattern was displayed in the early ministry of Messiah. Listen to John 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. The important thing to remember in each of these cases is that Jesus only did what he saw his father doing. Neither the motivation of Jesus or the apostles was cowardice or fear. They were moved by the spirit and the word in obedience to the sovereignty of Adonai. We really wish that we could say the same for others that quote these verses to veil their own fears. Our hope is that every that your very every footstep will be determined by the Spirit of God, so that we move when we should move and stand when we should stand. Amen. One of the things that Acts clearly displays from the death of Stephen in Acts seven through Acts eleven and the establishment of Antioch is that when the disciples are allowed to be scattered, it is an intentional and productive scattering by Adonai. That's right. They were not cowering in fear, but were courageously preaching the gospel in new areas. And we have a map to help you visualize this. They went from Pisidian Antioch, there about the middle of the map, to Iconium, and to Lystra. As you consider the path that Adonai chose for Paul and Barnabas to embark on, you should know that Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe are all within the region of Galatia. Say Galatia. Galatia. And will eventually become the churches to which Paul writes the letter that we know as Galatians. One of the proofs that his fleeing from Iconium to Lystra was motivated by the Spirit rather than fear is found in the very next verse that we will read. Amen. Then let's read it. In Lystra, there sat a man crippled in his feet who was lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Mm. Paul looked directly at him and saw that he had the faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. Come on. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. Well, needless to say, we have much to say about this event. But let's start with the fact that Lystra is in the region known as Galatia. Mm -hmm. This is important because the church that will be formed here is one of the recipients of the letter to the Galatians. Luke has just recorded an outstanding miracle that occurred in Lystra. Not unlike the one performed by Peter, and John in Acts chapter 3. Right. Just for fun, let's fast forward in time and see one of the things that Paul appeals to in his letter to the believers in this region. This is Galatians 3, 3 through 5. Are you so foolish after beginning with the Spirit? Are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God give you His Spirit and work 
miracles among you wow. because you observed the law or because you believed what you heard. Wow. wow. Thanks. We really don't have time to go into the reason Paul wrote to the Galatians. And it is not our point in quoting this tonight. Our point is that the deeds and teachings of Jesus were displayed through Barnabas and Paul to the Galatians. And Paul later draws on the experience of miraculous events in this region as he corrects them in later years. It seems that most of what Paul wrote in his epistles was based on things he experienced while working with Barnabas in these years. Well, now let's discuss the man who was healed. It seems that he possessed a faith that could be seen or discerned from the outside. He had a faith that could be described like a coiled spring within him, just waiting to be released through the expression of an action. The man immediately responded to the command, stand up on your feet. It would be a mistake to see this as a special kind of faith. The reality is that he did not have a specialized faith in healing, as the NIV seems to indicate. The word that the NIV translates as healed in the phrase, he had faith to be healed, is the simple Greek word sozo. Come on. That word means both to be saved and to be healed. Yeah. Yeah. We'd like you to hear how the Young's literal version translates that. Come on. This one was hearing Paul speaking who, having steadfastly beheld him, and having seen that he hath faith to be saved. You see, our point is that the man who had the faith to be saved and healing was just a byproduct. Paul had not been preaching on healing alone. His message was on the good news of the kingdom. Genuine faith to be saved is faith to be healed. Because saving faith is always like a coiled spring waiting to be moved yeah. into action in the will of Adonai. Yeah. There is no difference between the faith for salvation and faith for healing. That's a good yeah. word. Consider yeah. this passage from Jesus' ministry recorded in Luke. Ooh, you guys ready to put the pieces together? Yeah. We're trying to wind that coiled spring within you. Yeah. Listen to Luke chapter 5, verse 23. This is Jesus speaking, by the way. He says, Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately, He stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. The fact is that the Bible regularly presents the forgiveness of sins associated with salvation and the healing of diseases in the very same sentiment. Psalm 103 is a great example of this truth. It says, He is the God who forgives your iniquity and heals all your diseases. The only reason that we tend to feel like these are separate issues is that physical healing can be seen and salvation 
could be faked. Wow. Mm. Uh-oh. Wow. The point that we hope you take from all of this discussion is that real saving faith is the faith to be healed. Come on. Yeah. The fact that you may still be required to wait for a healing, well, this only purifies the genuineness of your saving faith. Come on. Let's continue in verse 11. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. <laughs> Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. So there is a lot to say about these verses, but before we get into Zeus and Hermes, it's important to grasp what has happened in the lives of Barnabas and Paul up to this point. It is a beautiful, beautiful character, character sketch that will benefit you in the years to come. Do you want to hear it? Yes. Yeah. So let's do Acts 4.36 first. It says, this is the introduction to Barnabas. It says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, sold the field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So when Luke originally introduced us to Barnabas, his name was given as Joseph. Yeah. Let's take this slide. It's called Joseph the Levite. Joseph, Joseph, Joseph. may he, that Joseph. is Jehovah or Yehovah, may he add. That's what his name means. This popular Hebrew name essentially means he adds or he increases. Come on. Yeah. This is because when Rachel named him, it was in the hopes that she would have another son. Everything about the name Joseph is meant to convey addition to the community of God. Even though his name was Joseph, the brothers also nicknamed him Barnabas, which means, let's get our next slide, Barnabas, i.e. Barnaba. Oh, yeah. Barnabas, or Barnbua, is son of prophecy, especially as it is manifested in exhortation and comfort. Yeah. So the dictionary derives the name Barnabas from, Aram- from an Aramaic source, meaning son of prophecy. This may be true, but it is equally possible that the name came from Hebrew sources, since Barnaba is very close to how you would say son of prophecy in Hebrew during the first century. The reason that we're pointing this out to you is that Barnabas was a man who would continually add, that is, acting his name Joseph, continually add to the community of God and he did it through prophetic insight and encouragement regarding the development of other men. Oh yeah. The introduction of Barnabas, his other name, into the narrative of Acts also came with the detail that he sold his field and brought the money to the feet of the apostles. Mm. The combination of his name and actions paints a very special image that we have gone far into the book of Acts to now see and verify. Barnabas is a man who adds to the community by prophetic insight Amen. and encouragement in the development of other men and see, and he sacrifices all to achieve it. Yeah. This is a good example, isn't it? Yes. yes. Let's look at Acts 9, picking up in 26. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, 
speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. So surely, you can see the image here. Barnabas is working to add a son to the community. Barnabas is risking his own reputation because of something he can see in Saul. Barnabas is the one telling Saul's testimony to the brothers. Now those of you familiar with the Talmudim teaching will recognize these actions as take in and attach. Barnabas is fulfilling the prophetic name that he was given by his parents and the moniker that he was given by the community in Jerusalem. His work did not stop there. Let's go to Acts 11. We're going to pick up in verse 22. News of this reached the ears of the church of Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Now you have to consider this. Why did the church in Jerusalem send Barnabas out of all the possible men that they could have sent? Good question. Good question. It's probably because of his gifting to see what Adonai wanted to develop within other men. That's good. And to call it forth prophetically. Come on. Notice that Luke records that Barnabas saw the evidence of grace and that he encouraged them. That is because Barnabas, like all master disciple makers, was gifted to see potential in people and prophetically bring it into being. Let's keep going. Verse 24. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. The imagery around Barnabas getting cemented in your mind at this point? Yeah. Yeah. He's not only a good man personally, but he moves in the very power of ministry. That is, he was full of the Holy Spirit and empowered to add people to the community at Antioch. The people added were not mere attendees. That's right. The community grows to produce prophets and teachers. Moreover, the growing community also produces apostles. Wow. All right, are we boring you? No. Pay attention carefully to this next part in verse 25. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus. To look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. Barnabas brought Paul to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. We tend to think of Saul in near glorified terms. But Luke records that it was Barnabas who, quote, brought him, or added him to the community at Antioch. The work in Antioch had been the commission of Barnabas by the church at Jerusalem. But it was his pleasure to find Saul and bring Saul into the work he had been given. The only conceivable reason for Barnabas to do this is that he prophetically saw something in Saul that could be developed for the benefit of the kingdom of God. Come on. Discipleship is not a system of control or a system of hierarchy. Come on. on. Discipleship is about the development of the people of ministry into something that betters the kingdom by making them better than you are. Good word. Barnabas' role in Saul's life is often missed precisely because the Scripture never indicates that Barnabas was superior to Saul or that Saul was a merely subordinate student. 
This is because that's not what biblical discipleship actually is. That's just what sinful men try to make it. Oh my. Barnabas received Saul as an equal from the beginning. But his every action was aimed at making Saul better than himself. Come on. Oh, my friends, this is an important lesson because it will determine the future efficacy of every man in this room. Picking up in verse 27. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Mm. The community of Antioch recognized the special relationship between Barnabas and Saul and began sending them on missions together. Remember, Saul had not been particularly well received in Jerusalem prior to this, and Barnabas had vouched for him there. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the community of Antioch is imitating Barnabas' sacrificial attitude by financially aiding Jerusalem as Barnabas had done. They are also imitating Barnabas by endorsing and sending Saul back to Jerusalem along with Barnabas. Let's continue on to Acts chapter 12, starting in verse 25. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission... They returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. 13.1 In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. We're often blinded by the brilliance of the men that Saul of the man that Saul becomes. And this really obscures subtle hints that describe his development into that man. Did you guys notice that Saul was listed last among the prophets and teachers? Have you noticed that the repeated order up until Acts 13, verse 43 is always Barnabas and Saul? Yeah. Look well, at our sure. next let's let's look at our next slide together. <laughs> Barnabas and Saul. Acts 11 verse 30. Barnabas and Saul. Acts 12 verse 25. Barnabas and Saul. Acts 13 verse 2. Barnabas and Saul. Acts 13 verse 7. Barnabas and Saul. Oh my goodness. Acts 13 43. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews, synagogue, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The first time that Saul, otherwise known as Paul, was ever listed before Barnabas in Luke's narrative was in the community of Pisidian Antioch. During these encounters, both Barnabas and Paul were given an invitation to speak. But it was Paul 
that was given the opportunity to speak. The conclusion like Barnabas may have deferred to him. Yes. The conclusion of the sermon is the first time that the normal order of Barnabas and Paul is reversed. And Luke recorded it as Paul and Barnabas. This is because the constant advocacy of Barnabas. Barnabas' selfless inclusion of Saul into the work of Barnabas had developed Paul into the man that we all love today. And now Paul is seen with Barnabas at his side, listen, doing exactly what Barnabas had become renowned for in Antioch. They encouraged others to continue in the grace of God. Barnabas was likely added to the church in Jerusalem during the Pentecost event of Acts chapter 2. That event was very near A.D. 33. Saul did not come to Antioch until Acts 11, which was around A.D. 40. Discipleship is not based on the superiority of one man to another or the superiority of a particular calling over another. No, discipleship is about men transferring the experiences that they have gained in the deeds and teachings of Jesus to other men that will go further than themselves. Hallelujah! Barnabas is a premier example of this amazing process that we're all going to seek to imitate. Let's reread Acts 14, verses 11 and 12, and we're going to pick up there again. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas, they called Zeus. Uh And Paul, they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. All right. So it may seem like a strange reaction to you that the people of Lystra assumed Barnabas and Paul were gods that descended in human form. A little bit. There is a backstory to their comments that comes from the legends of a community that bordered Lystra to the west of Phrygia. Let's look at this slide. The backstory. Local Phrygian legend told of an ancient visitation by Zeus and Hermes to Phrygia. In the story, only one couple, Bacchus and Philemon, received them graciously. The rest of the population was destroyed in a flood. That kind of sucks. Yeah. They would remember that, I think. Yeah. Knowing some form of the story in their own language, the Lycunians are not, no doubt going to make the same, not going to make the same mistake ancient Phrygia had made. They want to honor Paul and Barnabas, whom they mistake for gods. Yeah. Basically, they do not want to get killed for not receiving the gods that have come down to them. Yeah. So the response of the people of Lystra was undoubtedly influenced by myths and legends that grew up that they grew up hearing about the visitation of Zeus and Hermes. It should be noted that these same men are going to stone Paul in the coming verses. It's like the people who praise you more unhealthily are the ones that actually end up stoning you. Needless to say, trusting in in tribal traditions and the myths of men is a risky and fickle business. We were tempted to judge these men harshly until we contemplated the level of tribal knowledge and Christian myth that pervades the modern church world due to their lack of knowledge in the scriptures. Wow. Our own ethos is often plagued by non-scriptural taboos 
and half-quoted but fully twisted scriptures. Mm -hmm. This is one of the reasons that it was so important to bring a pure representation of the deeds and teachings of Jesus to this region. Come on. Incidentally, it is also one of the reasons that it is so important to return to a purely scriptural basis of knowledge in the church. Yeah. As we get into Barnabas and Paul's response to the people of Lystra, it will be instructive. We will see in the response a practical step that all ministers must make in the field of transparency. So something that is even more interesting than the Phrygian myths is the way that they perceived the role of Barnabas and Saul after observing them together. Look at this next slide. The perceived relation of Barnabas and Paul. Paul they identified as Hermes, Zeus' son, by Maya and the spokesman for the gods, since he was the chief speaker. Skipping the Greek, as the gods who lead in speaking, and then the Greek phrases. So, it's easy to get focused on noticing that Paul was the chief speaker. This is because in our culture, we esteem the chief speaker to be the one in charge. Yeah. This is not only unbiblical, but it also ignores the cultural import of what is happening in Lystra. Oh, come on. The cultural emphasis is not on Paul as the chief speaker. It is on the perception of the nature of the relationship between Barnabas and Saul. Calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes implies that the people of Lystra saw Barnabas as the father figure and Paul as his son. Wow. Not only was Zeus the leading figure of the Greek pantheon, but he was also the father of Hermes. It would seem that the people of Lystra observed the interactions between Barnabas and Saul and came to the conclusion that they had a relationship that resembled a father and a son. Amen. This may be because of the role Barnabas played in Paul's discipleship and development. Did you learn something? Yes. yes. Let's pick up in verse 13. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when, they, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, wow. shouting. You will rarely, if ever, see men go to this extreme to avoid the praise of other men. It's, yeah. True. Yeah. it's not hard to imagine how some might have tried to monopolize this cultural misunderstanding in order to keep the favor of the people. If Barnabas and Paul were modern pastors, they may have said something like, Thank you for bringing the offerings. There's the offering box. We're not quite Zeus and Hermes, but clearly we are spiritually powerful. Or listen to us carefully and we'll tell you how to become just as amazing as we are. Oh. Barnabas and Paul were not like our modern pastors. Yeah. Look at their reaction. They tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, this is probably an intentional contrast with the events of Acts chapter 12. Yeah. Well, let's look at Acts chapter 12. Let's yeah. do it. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, oh. took his seat on the throne mm. to preach, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately. An angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give 
God the glory. Mm. And he was eaten by worms, even his privy member, and breathed his last. Look, the world is full of men who want to be seen in royal robes. They're usually suits today. They want to be on the throne of their own kingdom. Their name on the sign. They want to be viewed as preaching like an angel. Paul and Barnabas were not like these kinds of men. And neither should we be. Amen. They began their refusal of this kind of praise mm. by tearing their clothes. Come on. Justin's going to work you through some passages that help you understand what that means. So this is the scriptural backdrop of tearing your clothes. Genesis 37, 29. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes. 37, 34. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Dang. Then we have Joshua 7, 6. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. 2 Samuel 13, 31. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth, and all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. That's when he thought his son had died. Matthew 26, 65. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. Mm. The act of tearing your clothes is one of extreme grief. It is most often associated with the death of a loved one, but it is also associated with any statement perceived to be blasphemous. Does it cause you extreme grief when you are praised for a work accomplished through the Spirit of God? Mm. Is your verbal response... No, stop it. While your physical response is to motion for more of the praise with your hand. Notice that Barnabas and Paul committed to deeds first. They physically tore their clothes, showing grief over the praise and transparently showed that they were normal men. Then Paul and Barnabas began their verbal denouncement by shouting as they ran into the crowd. It is a good practice for ministers who receive compliments and accolades to learn to deflect them through the transparent display of their own faults. Let us show you what we mean in the life of Paul. This slide showcases his own development into the man that we all love so very much. As you get ready to look at this, one day you're going to be standing preaching. Maybe even somebody gets healed. Somebody will walk up to your wife and go, well, what is it like to live with that man? You need to tell him, I fought with her yesterday and I sinned. You need to learn to be transparent. Or you cannot be trusted to be an agent of God's glory. Come on. Come on. Guys, this slide is entitled, Transparency Increases What Adonai Can Trust You With. First scripture is 1 Corinthians 15, 9. You should know this is about A.D. 54 when Paul writes this. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Our next passage is Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. You should know this is about 10 years later in A.D. 64. Paul says to me, 
Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And finally, our third passage, 1 Timothy 1.16, written about A.D. 66 or 67. Listen to Paul here. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display His immense patience as an example for those who would believe in Him and receive eternal life. It can be difficult to shun the praise of man. This is particularly true when you are insecure because your work has not yet been validated by years of successful ministry. Perhaps you are called to be an apostle, but not enough years have gone by for that to become self-evident in the work that has been performed by the Spirit through your hands. These are dangerous and vulnerable times for men of God because you can be drawn to the praise and recognition of men so that you feel validated in your calling. It's true. Notice Paul's trend on the slide, though. In AD 54, he was the least among the greatest men on earth. <laughs> In AD 64, he was the very least of Adonai's people. In AD 66 or 67, he was the worst of sinners. The truth is that as Paul's ministry accomplished more and more, he himself was increasing in transparency more and more and more. If you truly desire to reserve all glory and all praise for Messiah alone, then prove it by shunning all praise through the transparent tearing of your clothes to allow people to see your faults alongside the miraculous workings of God present in your life. Amen. Amen. Saints, that was a better word than you're acting like it was. So let's now pick up in verse 15, and this will begin the first sermon in Acts delivered to a purely pagan audience as the primary target. Up to this point, it's all been in synagogues. You've read them. Now this is a purely or purely pagan audience as the primary target. Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. So those of you who have been through ministry training will recognize the pattern that Barnabas and Paul are following in these next few verses. Yeah. It is clear that the audience is comprised of mostly Gentile pagans. The pattern of the address given then is a discussion on creation fall, and the redemption of man. You recognize this, right? Yeah. In verse 15, Barnabas and Paul assert that they are only normal human beings. However, the people of Lystra have seen them do things that fallen human beings are unable to do. The apostles have been preaching the good news that fallen human beings can, can be redeemed and restored to the kingdom of God on earth. The apostles focused on repentance from worthless things, meaning the idolatry that had led the people of Lystra away from the true God. The anchor point of verse 15 is the identification of Adonai as the God who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. That's right. 
the apostles clearly set forth Adonai as the God of creation yeah. to whom every person on earth has a responsibility. So let's continue the sermon, realizing that they are shouting these things as they have torn their clothes and are rushing into the crowd preaching this message. Again, the pattern is creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. They have just set forth Adonai as the creator. creator. Brother Linton, grab verse 16. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Although every human being has a responsibility to Adonai who created them, in his mercy, Adonai has allowed the nations of the world to choose to go their own way without immediately reaping destruction. Now in his mercy, Adonai has his ambassadors from the one nation on earth that he reserved for himself, demonstrating the kingdom of God. These apostles are calling the nations back to Adonai by illustrating that the nations have fallen from the way of Adonai by choosing their own way. Wow. This call to repentance is very clear. Adonai is the creator, and the people of Lystra have chosen worthless things over Adonai. The anchor point of verse 16 is that the nations have fallen from their inherited relationship to Adonai, or intended relationship to Adonai. Amen. So let's keep reading and progress to the possibility of redemption and restoration in the text. Let's get verse 17. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. So saints, clearly we don't have time to go into the way these things have been associated with Zeus and pagan mythology. Instead, we want you to notice that the apostles are demonstrating the mercy of Adonai to a disobedient and fallen people. They are exalting the character of Adonai as the God of creation that expresses kindness to the fallen nations because he intends to redeem them and restore them to himself. Remember, this message is being delivered by apostles who were mistaken as gods and who are running into the crowd with torn clothes and shouting all of these words. Of all the messages you've ever seen, you've never seen one quite like that. No, (laughs) never preached one like that. They clearly set forth Adonai as the true God of creation. They clearly set forth the nations as fallen away from Adonai. They clearly laid out the responsibility of the nations to turn away from the idolatry of their fallen state. The apostles clearly illustrated the character of Yahweh who desires to redeem the nations and is kind to them in the midst of their current disobedience. Come on. Finally, the apostles are standing before them as representatives of redeemed Ooh. men who have been restored to the intended function of mankind. That's good. Is that beautiful? Yes. yes. You're going to see that exact pattern again in Acts 17. In the instance that we're reading about, the response of the pagans is, uh, well, it's not favorable. <laughs> However, in Acts 17, it's entirely successful. Come on. Come on. Let's look at the response and take note of the way that persecution also serves to preach the message of Adonai that can raise the dead and restore men to the intended function. Brother, would you pick up an 18 and 19? Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. (laughs) Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. Mm. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. Look, the message had been clear. Adonai is the creator. 
you have fallen from Him. You have chosen worthless things over the living God. And yet Adonai still has mercy for you. We are His representatives here making an appeal to you. However, when the apostles would not succumb to the idolatrous worship that the people of Lystra wanted to give them, the people of Lystra made themselves vulnerable to the poisoning of their minds through their own lack of repentance. Notice that it was the unbelieving Jewish populations of Antioch and Iconia. In other words, those who had already rejected the message that showed up to poison the people of Lystra. It's an amazing thing we're about to read you, but Paul commented on this process when he wrote to Timothy in specific terms. This is 2 Timothy 3, 1-17. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal. Wait, what? Without self-control. Brutal. Brutal. Like somebody throw a rock at your head. (laughs) Not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women. Hey, does that phrase great on anybody? Mm -hmm. Weak-willed women? It's very specific there for a reason. And I would encourage you to pay attention to the phrase because it will help you understand what's happening. Who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires. Always learning, but never able to acknowledge the truth. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these men oppose the truth. Men of depraved minds, who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far, because as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. You, however, know all about my teaching. My way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra? What? Do you see the setting? Yeah. The persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Come on. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learn it. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The extent to which Paul is writing to Timothy out of his experiences with Barnabas and Lystra could never be overstated. 
The specific phrasing that Paul uses concerns opposition that worms their way into the homes of weak-willed women. Oh, wow. This is exactly what happened in Pisidian Antioch that drove the apostles into Iconium and then Lystra. This is found in Acts 13, 49-50. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing. What? The devout women of high standing Mm -hmm. and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. The gospel was preached at the city in Antioch. And then unbelieving Jews stirred up weak willed women and the leading men of the city to drive the apostles to Iconium. The city of Iconium, in that city, the people were divided by the word of God. And the unbelieving population tried to poison the minds of the Gentiles against the believers. This led the apostles to Lystra, where the unbelieving population of Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra conspired to kill these messengers. Y'all feel like you have a better understanding now? Yes. The devilish opposition actually served to display the power of Adonai in two very distinct ways. Firstly, whether Paul was dead or just mostly dead. He's mostly dead. And like Princess Bride. (laughs) Yeah. How badly have you to have been if if they think that you're dead, right? The power of God restored him to health in the view of the whole city. This is because Paul goes back into the city after the stoning. Yeah. Secondly, the whole experience became the basis for Paul's introduction instruction to Timothy. Paul is able to draw on this experience to set the expectation for Timothy of what genuine ministry life looks like. Mm. In other words, everybody who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will Will be be persecuted. persecuted. That was not a theory. He was writing out of what had just happened to him. (laughs) Yeah. Moreover, he was able to draw from the experience to illustrate how important it is to be trained by the Word of God that is the only real source of truth. Come on. Trusting in those myths didn't work out so well. (laughs) Right. Without the experiences at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, who knows if Paul would have been inspired to pen the words, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Yeah, we're going to have to keep going, but I can't help myself. Did you know that the background of 2 Timothy 3.16 and the declaration about the plenary verbal inspiration of the Scripture was written out of a setting where a Greek myth misunderstood caused Paul to be stoned by the people of three cities. That's why he's writing what he's writing to Timothy. Friends, you better trust in the Word of God. So our point is that the events at Lystra were not a failure by any measure. They simply represent an obstacle that was an opportunity for the miraculous display of Adonai's sovereignty. Amen. Our God caused every attack of the enemy to further His own purposes 
in ways that boggle the natural mind. Yeah. As we proceed into the next verses, take note of who it is that successfully prays for Paul's restoration to health. Alright, verse 20. When after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. Friends, how important is it that we operate in ministry that conforms to the five elements that we've identified in Acts? Let's look at this slide again. We have the priority of ministry, the body performing the deeds and teachings of Jesus. The power of ministry, the spirit of Jesus empowering you to carry out his will on earth. The third, progress of ministry, the outward focus and expansion of the kingdom of God selflessly. And focus on number four, people of ministry. Every member of the body ministering as Christ. It was the people of ministry that raised Paul from his dead, or mostly dead, state. Amen. If this had been a modern and western setting, the disciples in Lystra would have had to call for a guest healing evangelist. Oh my. Somebody get Reinhardt Bunker! Bring him! <laughs> the book of Acts is about the whole body performing the deeds and teachings of Jesus. Not just a few special men who are doing come on, it. Oh, come on. The book of Acts is about the spirit of Jesus empowering every member of the body. Oh, yeah. Not just a special few. The book of Acts is always focused on the outward expansion of the kingdom into new regions. If the gospel had not reached the people of Lystra, Lystra you may be able to argue that Paul would not have been stoned. However, it would also be true that no one in Lystra would have ever been used by Adonai to raise the dead. Come on, Come on somebody! Yeah. While you're reflecting on these concepts, we want to drive in. The people of ministry is everything. Yeah. The reason that we teach these classes is so that you will begin to believe that you are the people of ministry. Amen. The deeds and teachings of Jesus cannot be limited to a few leaders. That you live by charismatic group. The purpose of all that we are studying is for you as the body of Christ to be the people of ministry that perform the works oh, of come Christ. On. Yeah. Now is a good time for us to ask a few personal questions. The first one being, is the gospel that you're preaching worth dying for? While you're thinking about that, let's add one. Do you owe a debt to the king and others that require you to get up from a figurative or literal stoning and continue? Yes. See, we maintain that Paul owed a debt to both Jesus and Stephen Come on. to get back up and go into the city. Come on. Remember, Paul had stood at the coats of the men who stoned Stephen. Wow. Stephen was deprived of the chance to preach to the people of Lystra. Come on. Come on. And but now Paul answered that debt to both oh, Jesus yeah. and yes. Stephen by getting up and returning to his mission. Saints, we have to ask, have you been sidetracked from the debt that you owe to both Jesus and your brothers by cares and worries in life? Have you pressed pause for a little while because you feel misunderstood, unacknowledged, or even unfruitful in your work? See, now's the time. Now's the time for us to get back up into our work. The apostles have shown us how to labor without an acknowledgement of our calling. For years, or even a decade. The apostles have shown us how to get back up from persecutions, from slander, and even murderous attempts, and then return to the calling of the one who purchased our lives. Yeah. 
We don't have time for it, but I'm going to read Galatians 1.15 anyway. <laughs> but when He had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son to me, in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Mm. Paul was born to preach the Gospel. His calling as an apostle was not recognized for many years after his transformation. Wow. It was nearly a decade before the appropriate persecution and constant discipleship called his calling to become evident to others. However, Paul did not wait for these things. Come on. He immediately engaged on, in the yeah. calling that yeah. he was brought into the world to perform. Come on. What are you waiting on? Do you feel like you need an invitation from us to perform your calling? Well, let me say it plainly. You don't, but you have it anyway. It's time for the men and women in this room who have received so much from Adonai, and dare I say from your brothers, the people of ministry, that you owe a debt to the king who called you. And you owe a debt to the brothers that have helped you. Don't wait. The time is upon us. And the world around us is perishing. Let that not be perishing without your witness of the life that you have received. Come on. Oh. Well, like Elder Eric said, we're going to need to keep moving in order to finish within our time frame. But we need to at least alert you to the fact that Paul wrote about this stoning in 2 Corinthians 11.25, where he says, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. More importantly, he writes about the attitude that emerged from this experience in Philippians 3.10. I want to know Christ Come and on. the power of His resurrection yeah. and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, yeah. Yeah. becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. The things that you suffer for Christ make Him even more valuable to you. Yes. Paul did not write about these words as a metaphor. He had literally been stoned and literally felt the resurrection power of Christ working in him. This power caused him to stand back up on his feet yeah. and fulfill the great call of God on his own life. Friends, this might be one of the more important lessons that you can learn from this text. Is the things that you suffer for Christ and overcome that cause you to become more and more secure in the calling of Christ. When the devil does his all to make you quit, and yet he is unable to do so, this produces supreme confidence in your identity and calling. Let's quote James on this subject and then move forward. James 1-2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Hallelujah. Let's move on to verse 21. Good word. They preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom 
they put their trust. Oh, come on now. In these verses right here, there are three pillars that can be derived for every ministry. The first is found in verse 21. It says they won a large number of disciples. They did not win a large number of merely converts. They won disciples. The call of ministry is not to obtain butts in the seats. It is to make disciples, church. Amen. We could spend all night talking to you about the differences, but it is quite unnecessary to do so. This is because the difference is evident all around us. Converts are content to be saved, to sit in seats, to soak in teachings, while never becoming an actual disciple maker themselves. However, real disciples are the people of ministry. Men and women that actually display the deeds and teachings of Christ Jesus. Real disciples become disciple makers themselves. Real disciples actually advance the kingdom by living and acting as the body of Christ and making more of what they are. Amen. In short, converts are recipients, but disciples are those that reproduce in the kingdom. Come on. First pillar, winning actual disciples. Okay? Let's move into our second pillar. It is found in verse 22. It says, they strengthened the disciples. The strengthening of disciples is done by teaching them to work in the power of ministry. Real disciples are strengthened when they are put in positions that allow them to feel the spirit of Jesus empowering them to carry out His will on earth. Come on. Disciples are never strengthened by sitting stagnantly. Yeah. It is when they or us, when we focus on the progress of ministry and begin to lead completely sacrificial and utterly focused lives that the Spirit of Jesus empowers us to advance His kingdom. This is why we keep referring to Luke's emphasis on the deeds of Jesus coming prior to the teachings of Jesus. The disciples of any ministry begin to be strengthened by the Spirit of Jesus when they take the initiative. Say that again. Initiative. Initiative. When they take the initiative to contribute rather than to be content with consuming. Do you want to be strengthened? Yes! It is done by putting the faith that you possess into real and daring action for Jesus Christ. His very Spirit will move on you to perform His will on earth. Let's examine the third pillar of ministry. It's found in verse 23. They appointed elders. Oh, come on. As we get into this topic, we want to preface it by quoting a verse. 1 Timothy 3, picking up in verse 1. Here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. The callings of apostle, prophet, teacher, pastor, and evangelist are appointed by Jesus alone, according to Ephesians 4. However, the function of an overseer or elder is within the grasp of anyone who progresses in the kingdom appropriately. That's right. We want to show you how the role of a biblical elder works practically, because it is something that each of you should desire in your hearts as a noble function within the body of Christ. This function is for anyone who is genuinely discipled into the people of ministry, and establishes themselves firmly on the lifestyle outlined in the Word of God. Like all other 
Sorry. Like all other functions, it is possible to be performing the role of an elder for many years without the recognition of the title by your peers. Yeah. In fact, it may be necessary. Come on, yeah. it is necessary. Men yeah. should be recognized as elders only when they are already functioning as elders, and it is evident to yeah. all. Amen. All right, so we're going to embark on a journey in the law, prophets, and writings in both the Older and Newer Testament to derive a functional and practical view of elders. Come on. We're going to begin in Exodus 24, verse 9. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and stay here, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commands I have written for their instruction. Then Moses set out with Joshua, his assistant, and Moses went up on the mountain of God. He said to the elders, Wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and Hur are with you, and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. Saints, in this passage, Moses and Joshua are viewed as being on top of the mountain, meeting with Adonai in order to receive instruction for God's people. The elders of Israel are placed on the mountain in the middle of the mountain. The people are seen encamped at the foot of the mountain. As Moses and Joshua receive instruction, they transmit it to the elders, who then relay it to the people. From this imagery, you can glean the role of an elder is to exemplify and transmit the teachings of the leaders to the congregation. This means that an elder must be an excellent personal example of all that your ministry has been instructed by God to be. Mm. The elder works tirelessly to make sure that each of the congregants <coughs> understand the teachings of the leaders and then works with the disciples to implement it in their own lives. Now in this room we have John Dang, yeah. Bajer Regina. Yeah. And Charlie Brown. Yeah. Amen. As excellent examples that display what this looks like in our own congregation. Let's keep going in the prophets because you can't buy this stuff in the Christian bookstore. <coughs> Joshua 24.1 Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, leaders, judges, and officials of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. Now we're going to pick up in verse 31. Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. This setting is very similar to Exodus 24. But in this scene, the elders outlive one generation of leaders and then bridge the gap to the next. Elders are men whose example is instructive for a new generation of leaders and who stabilize the disciples during times of transition. This is one of the many reasons that Barnabas and Paul appointed elders before other leaders were named. Wow. The idea is that if elders recognize a new generation of leaders, then all of the other disciples will follow their example. Yeah. In this house, we anticipate that John Dang will fulfill this function very well in the coming years. That's right. John is in fact the product of this ministry yeah. and is perfectly suited to ensure that a future generation of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers 
are received by the disciples that they will be leading. Amen. Moreover, John will help ensure stability in those times by remaining as an excellent example of all that this ministry was called to produce. Hallelujah. Moving to the writings in Ezra 5, 1-5. Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Edo, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, son of Josadak, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. At that time, Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar Bosnai, and their associates went to them and asked, Who authorized you to rebuild this temple and restore this structure? They also asked, What are the names of the men constructing this building? But the eye of their God was watching over the elders of the Jews, and they were not stopped until the report could go to Darius and his written reply be received. This setting is regarding the rebuilding of the temple of God. Some of the most anointed leaders in history are present. Men like Haggai, Zechariah, Zerubbabel, and Jeshua. But the eye of God was watching over the elders. This is because elders are men that remind you of the mandate of God to complete the spiritual house that Adonai is building. They are uniquely empowered to remind you of the original anointing and encourage you to keep going in the great call of God. Elders are anointed and experienced. This allows them to be able to encourage the completion of what has been started. In most cases, the elders were there when the original words was given and remind the disciples and leaders to complete the work that Adonai commissioned. Elder Charlie Brown is an excellent example of this facet found in elders. He was there during Pastor Eric's early years and frequently encourages him to complete the work that the grace of God commissioned him towards. Come on, let's take our next one, Acts 14.23. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church. This is where we are tonight. And with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. While this seems repetitious, it is important to remind you that elders were chosen prior to the identification of the fivefold ministry leaders. This is because these elders were chosen based on the exemplary kingdom qualifications that were found within their lives. The idea is that If these elders recognize the emergence of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers among the community in Lystra, well, then all the other disciples will begin to recognize and they will be benefited by those men. Yeah. Let's give you a real example that you're very acquainted with. When you think of Elder Bosch, our Regina, he's an excellent example of this function. His own Nick has an apostolic calling. Yeah. And he has become an excellent pastor. Amen. When Bosch and as Bosch is able to recognize this calling and receive pastoral counsel from his own son, then every other member of the body is able to easily receive the same kind of counsel. Amen. Ministers are gifts to the body of Christ, but elders 
help to identify and validate those gifts Come on. through the body yeah. in each generation. Yeah. Are y'all getting it? Yeah. Let's also take the letters to Timothy. 2 Timothy 1 verse 6. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Also 1 Timothy 4.14. It says, Do not neglect your gift which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. So this passage is reminiscent of the previous examples in both Joshua and Ezra. Elders are men that were there when the calling was identified. Come on. They were present in that time. This makes them perfect sources of encouragement to finish what Adonai has begun in another man. So true. You can also see that although Paul was an apostle, he was also an elder to Timothy. Elders are men who remind you during difficult times that you are called and anointed to complete the work of God. Amen. Come on! The eye of God is always on the elders so that they can perform this vital function for both the disciples and ministry leaders. Hallelujah. Even Zechariah, Haggai, Zerubbabel, and Jeshua were benefited by this kind of edification from the elders in Ezra 5. As you can see, the behavior carries into the Newer Testament period. Elders John, Bosch, and Charlie performed this function frequently within the team meetings at LCM. That's true. Now we want you to listen to Revelation 5, picking up in verse 1. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Come on. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. The setting in this passage is beyond surreal. The Apostle John has outlived all of his ministry companions. He is presently on the prison island of Patmos. What we just read is an interaction during an open vision that John was having. During the vision, he became mournful and he wept violently. This is because John seemed to be viewing a situation that had no hope. His initial observation was that no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the seal that details the redemption of Israel. This literally caused the aged apostle to break down. But then, one of the heavenly elders spoke words of encouragement and hopes in Come on, somebody! This passage reveals that elders are uniquely qualified to bring strengthening and encouragement to those serving the body in the capacity of leadership. Perhaps if John had been surrounded by a congregation on Patmos, then an elder would not have had to do this for, for him in the heavenly realms. One of our goals is to make sure that there is never another generation of leaders that are denied the comfort of elders. Hallelujah! Ironically, this is up to you. Yeah. Because elders are men who set their hearts on this noble task and have shown the qualification by living as the people of ministry for many years. Come on. We're clearly at the balance of our time, but we would love to provide 
a more exhaustive explanation of elders in the Bible than time permits at this point. But what we will do is rest this discussion on the most misinterpreted passage of all time. What is this passage? Misinterpreted. We're going to consider James 5 together. Yeah. This is James 5 beginning in verse 13. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Again, we would love to show you the hours of research that we have done in these verses. We would love to show you how we work through the use of Greek terms in the Septuagint and in the Newer Testament. We love to prove the correct interpretation to you and enjoy a little laughter at the expense of ourselves for misunderstanding this passage in the past. Time is not going to permit those things. So in an effort to eliminate tribal myths and half-scripture quotations that have been fully twisted, <laughs> we're just going to share our conclusion with you. Can I share the conclusion with you? Yes. <laughs> we have a slide called Elders in James 5. Thus James' point is that the weak, that's asthene, and weary, kamnata, would be refreshed, encouraged, and uplifted by the elders who rubbed oil on the despondent's head and prayed for them. The word asthene is translated sick, but more often than not, it simply means spiritually sick, weak. The word kemnata is translated sick, but the only other occurrence of it in all of the Bible is about a sickness in your faith. You can read Romans 14 and find these very same words. For the fallen, discouraged, distressed, weary believer, restoration is assured, and the elder's prayer offered in faith will make the sick or weary one well, yeah. i.e. will restore him from discouragement and spiritual defeat, Come on. and the Lord will raise him up. Woo. That the restoration is spiritual, not physical, is further clarified by the assurance if he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Amen. Many physically ill Christians have called on elders to pray for them and to anoint them with oil. But a sizable percentage of them have remained sick. Yeah. This fact suggests that the passage may have been mistakenly understood as physical restoration rather than spiritual restoration. Friends, James does not refer to the elders assisting a physically infirmed person. A careful survey of the wording of James will prove to you that the elders are actually being employed to restore the spiritually weary and spiritually sick person back to a healthy function within the body of Christ. Take the time, as we have, to thoroughly research the words asthene and kamnata in the older and newer Greek versions of the Bible it will become patently obvious to you what we are saying is true. Understanding this will make it obvious to you why Barnabas and Paul installed elders yeah. in the new Come churches on. at Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Come on now. It was quite literally necessary for their survival. Amen. Yeah. It is our hope 
that each of you will set your hearts on this noble aim. Yes. Amen. Because our future survival will be dependent upon you rising to become elders yes. to a new generation. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's finish our text tonight. After going through Pisidia, they came into Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. So we're going to close on the map of their journeys and give you one last thought before the pastors come up and close us out. As you're looking at this map, note that even after persecutions in Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and then arriving in Derbe, the apostles retraced their steps and returned to the same cities they had been persecuted in for the strengthening of those churches. The phrase that we want to close on is from verse 26. It says that they had been committed to the grace of God for the work that they had now completed. Oh, come on! Yeah. Brothers, each of you has been committed to the grace of God for work which you have begun. The real question before you is will you complete what you have started? We are counting on you Becoming the people of ministry. And our future depends on it. Our future depends on you completing what you started. You are our joy and our crown. We hope to wear the work done in you straight into eternity. How special is it when we're talking about the elders of the faith? Where are the elders chosen from? We, the people of ministry. This concept that we have tonight is something that is, must be more than just moving in our emotions and our thoughts, but it should move us to action. In Philemon chapter 1, I'm going to read it out of the 84 NIV, so it's going to be different on your screen. More anointed. More anointed. <laughs> I'm going to begin in verse 4. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. This is Paul acting as an elder towards this man, Philemon, along with a son in the faith, Timothy, who's there with Paul as well. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith. Somebody say active. 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 So that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. The passage goes on to begin to speak about a man named Onesimus who was useless but became useful because he understood his position as a, one of the people of ministry. It is not for the select few. It should be the absolute aim and goal of every man and every woman inside of our church. And it's going to be this for us. This is not just for the people who stand on a stage to become active in doing what the Lord has said. As we are active, as we understand that it is the people of ministry, the very body of Christ that operates as the hand and feet of Christ here on this earth, 
that you become able to not only know, but to be able to do every good thing that has been given to you. Somebody say, we are the people of ministry. We are the people of ministry. Say it again like you really believe it. Say, we are the people of ministry. We are the people of ministry. As the people of ministry, I ask you to rise. (laughs) Now, of course, that call to rise did mean to physically stand on your feet. But oh, so much more. I mean, rise in your courage and faith to act upon being the people of ministry. Ray Pena, are you a son of the Most High God? Yes, I am. Has he redeemed in you his God-given purpose and task? Yes, he has. Does ministry flow through you and your home? Yes, it does. Do you bear witness to this church? Yes. He's not the only one. It's us standing in this room who have submitted their lives unto the King of Kings, and we say, use us, Lord, and use us to the fullest. Did the blood of Jesus just buy three quarters of who you are? Half of who you are? How much did it buy? So what do you give him? Mighty God, we give to you all of who we are. In our deeds, in our heart, in our spirit. Lord, let your kingdom come and your will be done through us as your people, your body and your family on earth as it is in heaven. And may you and you alone get the glory for it. In the name of Jesus, we the people of ministry shout, Amen! Amen.